Um, we're going to be looking today at Proverbs again, a few more weeks in the book of Proverbs. So if you have a Bible, crack open your Bible to the middle section. We'll be starting around page 527 in Proverbs chapter 3. The Proverbs have been challenging us to learn biblical wisdom, which is at its heart, listening to God's voice and following what he says. This week, as we look at Proverbs chapter 3, we're calling it delight in discipline. Delight in discipline. We often think that these two things don't go together, but they do go together. The God who loves us then calls us to lead others. I also want to clarify that sometimes we might hear the word discipline uh, shaped by how it was used in our background. And so discipline is really interchangeable with training, with training. And so this has biblical application, as we've said throughout Proverbs. A lot of this language is family language, parent-child language, but it has application more broadly. If you don't have children, God has called you to be uncles and aunts in the body of Christ. And God's called you to lead the people in your sphere of influence. So this has training and discipline application for teachers, for, um, for doctors, for commanders, right? In any area of life, you're leading somebody. So we're going to talk primarily about parents, um, but remember that essentially we are being parented by God. He delights in us, and in His gracious delight in us, He disciplines us. He sets us on the right path, and that's a sweet and good thing. Um, in context of music, it's helpful to think about training, music, sports, a lot of different areas where you might have undergone strict training, difficult discipline that has helped you to come to a place of delight. I've tried to learn guitar multiple times. I have a guitar hanging in my office. If you want to hear me play, I could play a few songs for you very slowly and very badly, okay? Because I never broke through to that level of discipline where I built up the calluses on my fingers. Anybody here ever played guitar? You know what I'm talking about? The uh, acoustic guitar has steel strings that are very hard on little baby fingertips. It's painful for soft hands like mine. The more you practice, the more you discipline yourself, the more you train, you start to build up calluses. Your fingers get hardened, and what does that do? That helps you break through to the place of delight. You're getting to make beautiful music. You're getting to enjoy it. So Chris Webster, our, our intern, Chris Johnson, led music last week. My son is a guitar player. Maybe you have done this in a musical instrument that you're learning. You train yourself, you discipline yourself, and over time, there's a payoff of delight, of, of music, of joy. And we see the same thing in the context of discipline, both moral discipline, parenting discipline, but more broadly, any kind of discipline in life, it leads us to a place of delight, and it comes from a God who delights in us. So we'll start with Proverbs chapter 3. It's a section we've seen before, but it's a really foundational chapter. If I had to pick one chapter that's like the summary of the whole book, I'd say chapter 3 is probably the best place. Chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 is where we will launch today. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Or be weary of his reproof. That means correction. For the Lord reproves or corrects him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. Discipline. If you've been disciplined by parents, it should have been from a place of delight and love. I recognize some of us that wasn't the case. I know for some of you this could be a very painful sermon. And so I have been praying for you, and I'm going to pray for you again, and just want to recognize that failing parents is a reflection of the reality that there is a perfect standard. There's a perfect standard. So if you had great parents or you had terrible parents, uh, none of them measure up to a perfect heavenly father who always disciplines us in love and in kindness. We want to recognize that, that that's the goal, is to compare ourselves to him as parents, but also to recognize, man, in all this hurt and pain I've gone through, I can run to him. I can ask him for help. He will restore me. He will heal me. He will help me. So let's, let's pray that he would be with us. God, we thank you that you love us, and we see it so clearly in the story of Jesus, that you came and you met us in our pain, that you lived the life we should have lived, that you died a sacrificial death in our place, that you rose from the dead, proving that you defeated death once and for all. And so we see with clarity you do love us, but you know we doubt it from day to day. We've had 
hard experiences, Lord, things that make us wonder. And so will you remind us once again? I pray for particular comfort for those who have bad memories of childhood, of discipline, of painful things that were taken too far. God, we pray that you would heal their hearts, heal our hearts, help us to trust in you, help us to lead, to train, to discipline others out of the delight that you have in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with chapter 3 for our first point, and then we're going to look at chapter 29 and then chapter 24. So I'm going to do what I've been doing the last few weeks, jumping around a little bit in Proverbs as we look at these topics and trying to kind of pull in the main ideas about parenting, disciplining, training throughout the book of Proverbs. And so we have three big ideas as we look at discipline and delight. Number one, we should discipline because of gospel confidence. Because of gospel confidence, we see this hinted at, right? Gospel is kind of a New Testament word, but we see this redemptive grace of God, even in the Old Testament. So we discipline because of gospel confidence. Number two, we discipline with strategic discomfort. Strategic discomfort. You like how politically correct I said that? You like that? We're, we're going to get a little more in the weeds. I'm going to offend some people on the second point. Discipline with strategic discomfort, but not on purpose. Um, and then finally, number three, discipline for dangerous mission. Discipline for dangerous mission. But we're called to something more than just being rich and happy. We're disciplined towards something that matters. So number one, discipline because of gospel confidence. We'll continue on in chapter three. And so we had the concept in verses 11 and 12, the first one I read of not despising discipline. It comes from a place of delight and putting those two things together. Chapter three works this out more with the idea of being able to trust the Lord. So we're going to look at verses 5 and 6 and verses 25 and 26 in chapter 3. And I just want to start off as I talk about gospel confidence, I talk about this as an answer to a problem I see again and again in the lives of parents. And this problem that I see again and again in the lives of parents is a problem I saw in myself as well. And it's just sheer panic, sheer fear and terror. Parenting is a horrifying idea. Guys, like it's, it's terrifying because we've been messed up. We see other people messing it up. We don't want to mess it up in the same way. It's terrifying. It's, it's, it's scary. And our world more and more is a world of anxiety, a world of a panic, a world of fear. I see parents fearing um, death. I see parents fearing disease. I fear parents fearing that their kids won't think they're cool. I, fear, I see parents fearing all kinds of things, right? There, there's all kinds of things that you can fear that you will mess up as a parent or bad things that might happen to you. And I've got to tell you, there's no guarantee that bad things won't happen to you, but we can have confidence in a God who is a God of grace. And that's what I mean by gospel confidence. Our confidence comes from outside of ourself and outside of our circumstances, right? So our, our circumstances could all go wrong, but I have confidence in a God of grace who's outside of those circumstances. Or I could go wrong, but I have confidence not in me and my performance. I have confidence, gospel confidence, in a God who is outside of me. So we see this in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord, not on yourself. Now, because my wife and I grew up in a broken home, I was a student of parenting. I've read like 50 books on parenting. And I've got a few of them up here that I can recommend to you. So I, I wanted to understand, but primarily you've got to start with prayer. You've got to start with God. Like, God, help me. Okay, and here's some books that maybe can help me understand the biblical worldview of parenting. That's, that's good. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you for some people that have gone before me that have learned some things. But it's got to start with a relational posture of gospel confidence. God, only you can make this work, right? So I'm not saying don't study and don't read books on parenting. I'm saying start with a direct relationship with God. God, I'm desperate for your help. I, I need you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. God will walk with you. Now, ultimate gospel confidence is that we will see Jesus face to face someday. And so we have to clarify because a lot of the weird stuff that's sold in, in churches today Like if you do these three things, your life will be perfect. That's not biblical, right? Jesus, our Lord, lived a life of suffering and sacrifice. And so we will often live a life of suffering and sacrifice. Our best life doesn't come now. Our best life does come later when we see Jesus face to face. 
But that eternal life breaks into the here and now, and we can begin enjoying it now. We can begin walking in confidence that God's got me. He's going to take care of me. I may go through some pain. My kids may go through some pain, but God's going to walk with us. He's going to help us get through this. So we trust in the Lord, and He will make straight our paths. Verse 25 and 26 says, Don't be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. The Lord will be your confidence. Not the perfect parenting book, not the perfect parenting method. Or again, if you take this in the broader category of just influencing the people you have leadership over, not the perfect teaching method, not the perfect commanding philosophy, not the perfect management system, but the Lord. The Lord will be our confidence. We are trusting in the Lord. So we discipline others, we lead others, we train others out of gospel confidence that God is with us, that He loves us. There's, there's real terror in parenting, right? There are these moments where you're just like, ah, I can't do this, right? Like it's complete freak out. And when that comes, we go back to the Lord. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is one of my favorite application verses for this kind of thing. As anxiety and terror comes into our heart, we pray. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, don't, don't be anxious for anything. But in prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Go to God. Run to God, right? And we can misunderstand these verses, right? If you struggle with anxiety, you might hear these verses where Jesus says, don't be anxious. And Paul says, don't be anxious. And you're like, oh no, I'm anxious. Does that mean I'm going to hell? No, okay? What, it's what do you do when the anxiety comes? Jesus and Paul are saying, don't sit in the anxiety. Don't stay there. Run to me. Jesus is saying, come to me. Trust me. Ask me for help. Cry out to me. Pray. That's what Paul is saying in in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. When the anxiety comes, and it's going to come, the terror is going to come, we trust in the Lord. We lean not on our own understanding. Um, I grabbed a picture of a spotter. Um, That's not me lifting. I just grabbed that online. Um, So this is someone lifting weights. Yes, that is a joke. Lifting weights. One time, y'all, I was lifting weights uh, back in the old days when I lifted weights more. I was an all-night security guard at a college down the street from where I went to seminary. My wife's laughing already. I was about 28 years old, right? So still had enough of that, like, dumb riskiness in me as a young man, right? And so my job was basically to check everything, all the buildings, turn off the lights, lock everything, make sure, you know, Nothing bad was happening. I was a security guard. And so I'm walking through and, and locking up the gym. And I'm like, hey, there's this great gym, right? It's 2 a.m. Nobody's here. I should lift weights. So I'm in the gym by myself at 2 a.m. lifting weights in my goofy security guard uniform. Um, and I guess I overestimated how strong I would be at 2 a.m. But I was not as strong as I thought I would be. And I got pinned under the bench press. <laughs> it was terrifying. Yes, it was horrible. Thank God I did not have collars on the weights, right? So I was able to do the thing where you're like, and I slide it over and all the weights fall off. And I've got like these rug burns on my chest now from doing this and get the weight off. And and I was, I made it. I survived. I'm alive, y'all. It's okay. Okay. In case you were wondering, yes, thank you for the cheering. Yes. (laughs) I saw two people in the back. I'm glad you're alive, Dave. Thank you. Here's the thing. When you lift heavy weight, you should have a spotter. Okay. You should have a spotter. You should have somebody backing you up, right? Because you're recognizing, I'm doing something hard. Parenting is really hard. And again, to make this a broader application, leadership of any kind is hard, and it's beyond you. And it's the supernatural of God, supernatural work of God, having your back, spotting you, being there for you, enabling you, that that enables you to do this, right? He's your safety. And we would say, in a social sense as well, other friends. We support one another. We talked about friendship last week. You need other people as well to back you up, to help you, to pray for you, to be in your corner. You need a community of friends. Here, we're talking primarily, though, about God himself. Gospel confidence. Trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. Run to him. Pray. Ask him for help, and and he'll spot you. Right? He'll, He'll keep you from dying. You're going to feel like you're dying sometimes, but he'll, he'll help you. 
Um, so how do we apply this? What does it look like to, to bring this gospel confidence into our everyday life as we lead children, as we lead in the workplace? What does it look like to discipline because of a gospel confidence we have in God and not ourselves? Well, number one, I think this is very helpful, just a, a very in-the-weeds application, is to read and memorize Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is one of the, the thickest and chunkiest gospel passages in the New Testament. I'm going to give you a quick summary because it's a long passage. Romans chapter 8 says this, there's no condemnation for you because of Christ Jesus, but you're still going to groan in this life. So pray and everything's going to be all right. That's Romans chapter 8. Now, Paul says it a lot more beautifully and with a lot more words. Memorize Romans chapter 8. Study Romans chapter 8. Read it to your children. Read it with your friends. Read it with your spouse. Take it home in your heart, and it will reinforce this gospel confidence. These things that are shadowy impressions in Proverbs chapter 3 will get this crystal clear clarity in the gospel and in Jesus in Romans chapter 8. That You can trust Jesus. He's going to be there with you. It is going to be hard. You will groan. The whole world is groaning. Everything is broken, but Jesus has proved himself for you, so you can trust him. Secondly, I would say read the Bible to your kids. Be a Bible reading person. Let your kids see you trusting in this gospel confidence. So beyond Romans 8, the whole Bible, trust in God's word. As Proverbs has told us again and again, be that kind of person. One of my favorite applications from one of our founding elders, he talked about, uh, his wife actually talked about this, how as her son, as a teenager, began to want to read the Bible on his own, this teenage son would come down in the morning grab his Bible and sit in dad's chair to read the Bible in dad's chair. Why? Because he'd seen his dad reading the Bible in that chair every morning for years and years. Now, he knew he could read the Bible in any chair, right? But it's just a, it's just a little picture of like, your kids are going to imitate you. They're going to do what they see you doing. Have they ever seen you read the Bible? Have they ever seen you in that moment of terror? Say, we got to pray we got to ask God for help because I don't know what else to do. Your kids need to see you in your terror, in your panic, running to God, trusting in the Lord, and leaning not on your own understanding. Here's the really difficult thing. Guys, as kids become teenagers, they can see through all the hypocrisy. And so one of the things that inflames rebellion in the teen years is the kids see right through you. They see through us. And they can know if you're lying or if you're being honest about your weakness and your need of God. You need to double down on being a parent who trusts God more than yourself. And when you say, I don't have it figured out, I'm trusting God, you're not throwing away your authority. You're still in charge. You're like, yeah, I'm still your parent. You still got to do what I say. But yeah, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm going to ask God for help. Like both things can exist simultaneously, right? And, and to be fair, we, we're not talking about some kind of weird like codependency where you tell all your secrets and all your problems to your kids, right? I just mean be honest. I have problems. I need to ask God for help. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not saying share all your weakness with them. I'm not saying be your kid's best friend. I'm saying be real. Be authentic. I need God's help. Mommy and daddy need God's help. We can't do this on our own. Chris Webster and I were talking about it this week, and he was like, there's a difference between pushing the Bible down on your kids and then saying, oh, we're both under this together. Those are two different postures. Does that make sense? Like one is like, here, kids, do what this says. I mean, I'm not going to, but you need to, right? The other is like, mommy and daddy, are, we're under this together. We're in this with you. Yeah, we're, we're scared sometimes too, and this is what we do. We pray. We don't always have it figured out, but we know that God is good. We can run to him. We can turn to him. We can read his word. We can pray. And so those are two different ways to live. I've got some story Bibles here to encourage you. If you've got young kids reading the Bible with your kids, these are three that I really like. There's, there's some other good ones as well, but these are just a few to put up here because there are a lot of bad story Bibles, just crummy ones that make everything into a morality lesson. These three, I think, are good at showing that Jesus and God's kindness to us in Jesus is the main point of the whole Bible. So that's why I especially like these three. If you're a young, um, young Christian just starting to read the Bible on your own, this is, does double duty for you, young parents. You actually learn a lot yourself as you're reading this to your kids, right? You needed the story Bible also. So this has helped me a lot. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, by Sally Lloyd-Jones. 
the Gospel Story Bible by Marty Mikowski and the Big Picture Story Bible by David Helm. There's other good ones as well, but these three are really helpful. I encourage you to read those. There's a lot of studies that show, too, just reading to your kids is good for their brains, okay? Um, way better than watching screens, uh, way better than always reading on their own. You want your kids to learn to read and be able to read on their own, but it's good for them to hear you reading. It's like a good part of the learning process to hear stuff and assimilate information that they've heard instead of just reading themselves. Um, so that's another, that's like a bonus, right? <laughs> You're actually helping your kids be smarter when you do that. And then this is a little side. I was just talking to a friend about this after the service. This is a bonus that the first service didn't get, okay? Bonus content here. We're talking about um, the overuse of screens in today's parenting generation. Like for us, the big temptation was that we would just pop in a VHS cassette. You can ask your parents about that later, what that means. We'd pop in a VHS cassette and let our kids numb out and become zombies. That was a, that was a temptation to lean on that too much. Guys, you have a much greater temptation today as young parents because you've got your little VHS player in your pocket all the time, right? Like it's just always with you. So I recognize that, that it's, it's even harder for you than it was for us. I just want to encourage you not to lean on that too much. It's not like it's evil for your kids to ever watch a screen. It's not like it's wrong to ever watch a story. Stories are great. Just don't lean on that. Um, I think part of why we do want to lean on that is we need a break. We're exhausted, right? That makes sense. Sometimes you do need a break. But also, I, th- I think sometimes, this is what I was talking about uh, with Catherine earlier, is that we think that life should be easy, right? Parenting's not easy. It's the hardest thing in the world. So, so it's not going to be easy. Sorry to break it to you. <laughs> it's going to be really hard. But there's, there's real sweetness in doing hard things. There's goodness in, in staying in the game and staying engaged and not just giving up. Uh, a last application, and we'll move on when it comes to gospel confidence, is you have to help your kids discern the difference between your house law and God's law. They are two different things. Making your bed is not in the Bible. Doing the dishes is not in the Bible, right? Now, responsibility and caring for the community, right? Those principles are in the Bible. And so as a parent, you're deputized to decide how you're going to teach your kids those things, right? So we made our kids clean their spots, and we made them make their beds, and we made them pitch in, right? We taught them to do these things, but they had to understand, yeah, there's a difference in how we work that out in our home and how your friends work that out in their home. You have to teach your kids that discernment to tell the difference between what y'all do, which should be in submission to God's word, but it's your own creative version of it, right? In your house. And then what your friends do over here. And to be able to recognize, yeah, sometimes your friends will ask you to do things that are not what we do, and it's okay, Other times, your friends will ask you to do things that we don't do, and it's wrong. Run, right? (laughs) Get out of there. Don't do that. And they have to be able to, you're you're growing your children in that understanding of like, okay, different people do different things. Some things are are hardcore Bible issues. Other things are just like, yeah, we're different. And your kids need to grow in that discernment if they grow, if you want them to grow in gospel confidence. Gospel confidence is being able to discern what really matters from what doesn't matter because we're not approved based on perfectly fulfilling our home orders or our home law. We're approved by God based on what Jesus has done for us. Okay, number two, we discipline with strategic discomfort. We discipline with strategic discomfort. This is a tool in our tool belt, and this is a hard one, so just want to recognize up front, if you disagree with me, that's fine. I'm not going to kick you out of the church. Like This isn't a church membership issue. Uh, different Christians have different views on this, right? I want to try to, to kind of lead us to a gospel middle that says discomfort and pain is a tool we use for discipline, and it's not something we should completely throw out. I mean, I think we have two extremes in parenting. One extreme is um, harsh, and one extreme is you're scared to ever cause any discomfort in your kid's life. Those are the two extremes I think we want to wash out for, right? We don't want to be harsh where we're just like making our kids miserable. And we also don't want to say, oh, I can't ever make them have any discomfort whatsoever, right? No, it's a strategic tool that you have in your tool belt. Making your kids discomfortable. Discomfortable? Is that a word? I don't know. Uncomfortable. That's a better word. Okay. Discipline with strategic discomfort. So Proverbs 29, 15 through 17 says this, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. 
the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So confusing point number one, a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. What does that mean? That means that everything that kind of the world is teaching us about kids just need to be themselves and everything will be fine, that's actually wrong. We're being lied to. Now, even Christians debate how we talk about this, right? But let me just say it in generalities because I don't want to do a whole sermon on this. There's something wrong with human beings, okay? There's something wrong with us. There's something glorious and, and gorgeous and fantastic about human beings and there's something wrong with us. And so we don't just work out, right? Like read Lord of the Flies. We don't, everything doesn't just work out if we look inward and follow our own desires. No, if we look inward and follow our own desires, if a child is less to themselves, they'll go bad. That's the biblical worldview. If you disagree with that, again, that's fine. We can be friends. But the Bible says that kids need to be shaped and directed. So that's number one. We have to start there. Kids can't just be left to themselves. Number two, we see the rod and reproof give wisdom. And so primarily, Proverbs talks about reproof, correction, verbal wisdom. That's the primary teaching tool that we use. Not this, this, right? But remember, you're bigger than them. If they're running into the street, you stop them, okay? That's the big principle. The way I've said it when it comes to physical discipline is I'd rather my child have a small sting than get run over by a car. That's my, my general framework of philosophy, right? You got it in a nutshell. So what is the rod? The rod and reproof give wisdom. The rod is both symbolic and literal for applying physical pain to train someone, okay? So the rod has many different meanings in Scripture, and I'll kind of go through the list. But before we go there, I want to make one more recommendation of this book I keep mentioning because my wife and I have been uh, reading it during... Uh, dish doing time in the evenings together. It's The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. It's one of his hardest books to read. Um, so as you read it, there'll be like 50%. I don't know what the heck he's talking about, okay? But it's really good. It's worth it. It's a short book, The Problem of Pain, because here's the thing. I think people hate God more because of pain than any other issue today. And so we just need to recognize that as I'm talking about strategic discomfort and pain sometimes being a good thing, we have to recognize that we're in a day and time and culture where we are way out on this end of the extreme. We're way on the extreme of pain should never happen. And, and we hate God because of it. That's where we are in culture. We have to recognize that culture swing back and forth and we're all different in different places. You know, we find ourselves in a time in history where people hate God more than ever because he's allowed this universe of pain. Now, what the Bible does is the Bible says, yeah, there are some explanations for that, but it doesn't spend a lot of time on the explanation. It says, what are you going to do about it? The world is a world of pain. What are you going to do? Are you going to make it worse? Or are you going to make it better? We live in a world of pain and disease. I think the real answer, the answer that's convinced my heart, is God met me here in this world of pain. He was willing to walk with me. Jesus came into our world of pain. He moved into our neighborhood. He lived and he suffered as we have, and he suffered even more because he suffered in our place, an innocent one for the guilty. So I think that's the ultimate answer for the problem of pain, but want to recommend the book as well. And then let's just get practical and talk about using pain as a, as a tool in our toolkit. The, riot, uh, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So what is the rod? Uh, the Hebrew word is shevet, shevet or shevet, depending on how you were taught Hebrew pronunciation, um, shevet. So number one, it's a symbolic scepter of authority, like a king's scepter, right? Have y'all ever seen pictures of this? I grabbed a picture of a, an ancient pharaoh statue holding, kind of looks like a shepherd's staff, but it would be a symbol of his authority. I, I googled a bunch of British pictures of people with scepters, but they just looked goofy to me, so I didn't want to put that up. You know, this seemed a little tougher and cooler, the old picture. Um, but there's all kinds of different symbols in different cultures of authority, right? And so the staff would be like, hey, I'm in charge. I'll whack you if you don't do what I like, right? But it's generally more symbolic than that. The king's not really whacking a lot of people. He's just kind of holding it. Say like, watch out, I'm in charge, right? There are other symbols of that. 
Maybe a fancy hat if you're a pharaoh, maybe a crown, depending on the culture you're in, right? It may be some sort of important pendant. You might have a throne. But what I want you to understand is you need to not forget that you have been given authority as a parent. We live in a day and age where we don't believe in authority. Like, recognize, you've been given authority. You're in charge of your kids. You can't, you can't say, no, that's somebody else's job. That's the teacher's job. Nope, it's your job. It's on you. You're in charge. So we've got to recognize, number one, the rod means you're in charge. You've been given a badge, right? Like, you're the sheriff. Mom and dad, you're in charge. You've been deputized. That's the number one meaning of the rod. The number two meaning of the word rod is, is a shepherd's crook, right? I actually asked Jonathan, our shepherd, about this a little bit. Like, what does that mean? And Psalm 23 says there's actual comfort in that rod. The staff, there's comfort there. Um, the shepherd would use the, the staff or the rod to lead the sheep. There might be some whacking that takes place, but it can also, it's got that hook, right? You can, might pull, you might catch a sheep with it to pull it in because you need to heal it and help it, right? So there's Diverse uses of this rod, the meaning of healing in Psalm 23, 4, and 5. Comfort, help, right? So we can have that view of the rod as well, so parents don't forget. Again, this extends to a kind of a broad leadership thing that you have as the shepherd of your children. And then finally, I do believe, and again, this is where Christians disagree, I do believe rod can also be translated as um, rubber spatula, or wooden spanking spoon, okay? I think that's a fair translation. It would have been like a switch, right? To be very literal, it just, it just means stick, right? Rod just means stick. So you got the king stick, you got the shepherd stick, you got the parent stick. Smaller, okay? It's not going to injure the child. It's a small one, but still, there's actual physical discipline here. And so we just got to recognize that sometimes, depending on how we've been raised, we might want to throw it out all together and say, I should never cause any pain or any discomfort to my child. Um, others of you might go too far the other way, like, well, I was, I was beat up and I turned out okay, right? So, um, so you use it too much. Some of you might feel like the rod being in the Bible gives you freedom to just kind of whack in anger, right? To just lash out and not control your anger. You should control your anger. This is not permission to not think about things. It, it should be cool calm. I use the word strategic. Strategic discomfort. You're training. You're not getting vengeance. It's not even really punitive in the sense of punishment or retribution, right? It's, it's training. The goal is training. So what's going to best train the child? That's what you need to be thinking about. So just for kind of technical asides here, spanking technically is still legal in our country, but child abuse is not. So when you read studies on this, it can get really confusing because they'll do a lot of studies on how, hey, spanking doesn't work, and they're, in, they're including in spanking um, parents that just whack their kids in anger all the time, right? And as Christians, we would say, yeah, that's not how it's supposed to be done. If you do use this method, it should be controlled, prayerful, calm. Like if you're all freaked out and angry, don't do it. You've got to calm down. It's got to be strategic, calm, cool, collected. And there should be no injury, Right? So the line for child abuse is injury. There's a mark. You've, you've changed the body of the kid, right? So a little sting is different than leaving marks and, and injuring a child. So we just want to make sure that we understand the distinctions here again. Some of you may still disagree with me, and I don't think this is a primary essential issue for being a Christian, right? I don't think you need to agree with me to be a Christian. I'm just saying I think this is what the Bible is teaching here, strategic use of discomfort. So here are a few of the other verses on it, so you don't think I'm just pulling this out of one verse. Uh, Proverbs 29, 15 was the first one we shared. There's Proverbs 13, 24. I don't know if I put that one up there. Yeah. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So the old phrase, spare the rod, spoil the child, not in the Bible, right? But this is pretty close. It's pretty close to saying that. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Um, Proverbs 22, 15 is folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs twenty two fifteen. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So again, this goes back to the, we're not a tabula rasa. There's folly in there. There's something like, there's something bent and twisted with people. They need direction. They need external leadership. Uh, and then the last one was Proverbs uh, 23, 13. Do I have that one up or did I leave that one out? Here it goes. 
if you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. So don't withhold discipline, but use the rod. Strike, strike sounds strong, right? We don't like that word. Fair. Um, but if you cause pain, if you use strategic discernment, uh, discomfort, it's not going to kill the child, but you will help them long term. Now, there's got to be balance. New Testament insight that's really helpful is Ephesians 6.4 and uh, Colossians 3.21. So Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction in the Lord. Okay? Don't provoke them to anger. I struggled with this sometimes. Um, we won't say which kid is which, but I had certain kids that pushed me more than others, right? Um, and it would stir in me a desire to show my, my full power and authority, right? Um, and I had to... I had to to pull that back, I had a desire to like make them pay, to make them angry, to frustrate them. And Ephesians 6.4 is like, no, that's not, that's not my job, right? I'm, I'm trying to direct them. Prayerfully, carefully, kindly, consistently. Colossians 3.21 echoes this as well. It's a parallel passage. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You don't want your kids to be discouraged. You want them to trust you. Sometimes that means strategic discomfort. Sometimes that means bringing pain into their life. So again, I would say the line is, you're not angry. This is not revenge. There's no injury, right? But strategic guidance. And just uh, one more piece, and that is, if you say no to your kid ever, you're causing them emotional pain, okay? So in our current day and age, it's the most evil thing in the world to ever say no to anyone about anything. So, like, we've already crossed that line as parents. Even if you don't believe in physical discipline, you're already crossing the line of, yeah, I understand. I got to make my life or make my kid's life uncomfortable sometimes. Because their goal is to eat as much candy as possible and follow their internal desires, right? And I can't let them do that, right? I've got to direct them in another way. So we just have to recognize, yeah, no matter what you do as a strategy, you're going to have to cause some discomfort. You're going to have to redirect your kids. Okay, third point. We discipline for dangerous missions. We discipline our kids for dangerous mission. Um, So think about this. What do you think is the mission for your kids? What's their life goal? I think predominantly in our culture, the life goal is to be rich and to be happy. And that is not enough. Being rich and happy is not enough. That's not a biblical goal. It's not, it's not bad. Like, that's great. I hope my kids are successful. I hope they're happy, right? But God is calling them to something more. God is calling us to follow him into this broken world of discomfort and to help others in dangerous ways, right? A dangerous mission, something beyond ourselves. So Proverbs 24, verses 10 through 12, say it this way. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Saying, if you faint in the day of adversity, right? When things get tough, if you give up, if you wimp out, your, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. The worldview of Proverbs is you're, you're being called into a dangerous mission. This is a dangerous world. We live in a world of zombies and chaos and craziness, and you're enlisting your children to help in the battle against evil, to help other people, to serve them, to rescue them, to alleviate their, their physical adversity and pain when you can, and also to alleviate their spiritual adversity and pain of a life separated from God. You're calling your children into the dangerous mission of looking more like Jesus. You're calling your children into the dangerous mission of helping other people. It doesn't sound dangerous, but it is. Getting involved in people's lives is dangerous. Anybody ever done lifeguard training? You're taught basically to be like this, right? When you rescue somebody, because otherwise they'll kill you. And so it's dangerous to help people, but still that's what God calls us into. If your goal is to help your kids just avoid discomfort and to be rich and happy, it's, the goal is falling short. God wants something more of us. He's calling us to big things, amazing things, difficult things, painful things. He's calling us to rescue those who are struggling. 
Now, for Christians, Christians like to debate about, you know, how much should we help people physically and spiritually? How much should we preach the gospel? And I'm not going to settle that today, right? But God's calling us to all of it. He's calling us to help people. He's calling us to serve people. And you should be training your kids to that mission as well. I grabbed a picture of some firemen training. Um, This is a particular picture where they're doing live fire training, right? Like it's an actual fire they're putting out. They're not just pretending. It's a real fire. They're trying to put it out. Um, But this is for their training. And I think what it shows us is when you're training to do real things, even the training gets difficult. Even the training can be dangerous. And that's how we should see parenting. I think too often we see parenting as trying to protect our fragile little children from ever doing anything dangerous or ever suffering or ever going through pain. And that's not not the goal. We live in a world of pain and we have to be serious about training our kids how to be of service in this world of pain. As I said, the, the question is not whether or not it's right that we live in a world of pain. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to trust God and his grace and then help other people? Or are we just going to shake our fist at him and say, how dare you? Why'd you make this world so hard? I trust that he's good. Again, the only thing that's changed my heart is the story of Jesus. Nothing else will do. There are other helpful things that we can wrestle with, right? But it's ultimately about Jesus. What do you believe about God? Does he love you or not? I believe that he loves us. And that's then given me the gospel confidence to to try hard things. And this needs to come into our parenting. So a dangerous mission is what we're called to. Being rich and happy is not enough, but we have a dangerous mission of of following Jesus and serving others. Um, One of the ways that Chris and I were talking about this earlier, is that sometimes we're pressured to think that our job is the most important thing in our life. So what's happened is we've made our goal to be rich and happy. And if that's your goal, well, then your children are going to be a big inconvenience to that. They're going to get in the way. And the older they get, the more they'll realize that. And so whatever you're living, you're, you're teaching your kids, you're modeling that to your kids. You're showing them what you believe. As I said earlier, as kids become teenagers, they start to see through all the stuff we say and they start actually analyzing what we do more (laughs) and start measuring how those don't go together. And so let me say it this way. Raising children, raising healthy children that love Jesus and are willing to serve others is more important than any job you will ever have. That's the most important thing you can do. Moms, dads, whoever you are. That's the most important thing. Don't let respect, money, fulfilling job become more important than actually raising your kids. That's that's the most important thing. Do you need a job? Yeah, I'm not saying go quit your jobs and just spend all day with your kids. No, but maybe. Maybe you need to quit your job. Maybe you need to change jobs. Still need to figure out some way to buy food and take care of them, okay? Got to work that out together, but don't put your job first. Raising kids is the most important important thing. So the world says that your job success is more important, that your self-actualization is more important, that your sexual happiness is more important than raising children. And I would say the world, the matrix, is lying to us. It's a lie. So here would be my application to, to pray this prayer. God, how can I use my gifts for your glory and for your kingdom. It's a dangerous prayer to pray yourself. What changes, God, do you want to make in me? How can I use my resources to serve you and your kingdom, to become more like Jesus and to help others? I think the dangerous mission is that we would look more like Jesus in our moral, ethical um, faithfulness to what he tells us to do, right? We've talked about that a lot in Proverbs. We would actually start to do what Jesus says to do in our life, living out the biblical worldview, obeying his moral standards. That's dangerous in our culture. And then we would actually look out for other people, helping them physically when we can, helping them spiritually when we can, telling them about the hope of Jesus. That's a dangerous mission that's worth embarking on. Start with the prayer. God, what can I do? What can I do to use what I have to serve others for your glory. I want to do one more little side before we wrap up, and this is just on education, because I think a lot of times 
when we think about education, I've heard a lot of talk about the purpose of education is to get your kids a good job, right? Like that's what it's all about. And I think, again, that's, that's falling short. And so I'm tempted to say, so here's the secret. Here's the perfect style of education that will fix all your kids. Problem is there's not one, okay? So I just want to clarify that because I know we've got different camps represented in our church. My wife and I, we engaged in public education, private education, and homeschooling, all three. We tried all three of them and none of them worked, okay? Uh, Just kidding. We had varied success in everything that we tried. But I want to help you to understand that there is no silver bullet. So I just want to kind of demystify it for you a little bit and say, whatever you do, whatever you choose that's right for your family to help your kids walk with Jesus, just recognize that there are, there are weaknesses in all these systems. So it's going to sound like I'm saying they're all terrible. I'm not saying they're all terrible. I'm just saying none of them are perfect, okay? Public school. What, what can go wrong with public school? Well, there's, there's no such thing as neutrality, right? So our culture says there is neutrality, that there's this secular neutrality where you can just say, uh, yeah, we can live this whole section of our life pretending that God doesn't exist. Well, no, that doesn't work. There is no neutrality. God does exist, and it affects everything. So we just have to recognize you have to push back on what your children are being discipled in. If they're in the public school, you have to take charge of their discipleship and help them sort through what they're being taught that's not true and what they're being taught that is true, because it's going to be a mixed bag, right? You know, think of the Jews in Babylon. You're, you're sending your kids to Babylonian school right? You just got to recognize that. The school doesn't agree with what we believe. There's no neutrality. Now I say for private school, what's the danger of private schools? Well, um, institutions struggle with hypocrisy. Just like I was saying earlier, that application of helping your kids distinguish between your rules and God's rules, you know, helping them understand the difference. Institutions don't do that very well, especially private schools. There tends to be a confusion. You see this a lot with the, the kind of trend of people that are leaving the Christian faith, there's a confusion between cultural Christianity and actually walking with Jesus. So private schools do that poorly. They mix those things up a lot. Doesn't mean you can't use a private school. You just got to know what the weaknesses are. And then finally, homeschooling. Um, there's a lot of blessings in homeschooling, but recognize that homeschooling, they're getting more of you than anybody else in the world which on the one hand is great because you're their parent, right? So that's the positive. What's the negative? It's spiritual inbreeding. They're getting more of you than anyone else in the whole world. And you're a sinner just like everybody else, right? So you got to make sure there are other influences in their life. Make sure you're aware of your own weaknesses. Make sure you're transparent and the kids are meeting other people and socializing in other ways. So there, there are weaknesses, there are pros and cons, there are strengths in all of these systems, but there's no silver bullet. Don't commit what's called by researchers methodolatry, which is like, if I have just the right method, it'll fix everything. No, there's not like some perfect method that just solves it for you. Oh, I've, I've you know, inserted my kids into the right system, and now everything's going to be fine. No, you've got to desperately pray and walk with God. That's what you have to do. And God will meet you there, and he'll help you, and he'll give you wisdom. Okay, we'll wrap up here. Delight in discipline. Delight in discipline, whether it's music whether it's studying things, whether it's management, whether it's sports. We've all been in places where we've struggled with discipline and with training, and we went through hard things, and we got to a place of delight. We talked about it in the beginning with music and learning to play guitar and the calluses that build up on your fingers. Well, I wanted to share a little bit about my son's own story. He's a musician as well, and he was an athlete throughout his teen years. And Right when he was entering into his teen years, we discovered a a terrible injury, right? He was doing great, playing football, just had his growth spurt and had some physical injuries. I don't want to go into all the details, but for a while, he had to just lay out of sports. He couldn't do sports at all for a year. And like up to that point, that was his life. That's what he was going to do with his life, right? Was be an athlete, which I think every young kid wants to be. Um, And so it was really hard. It was really painful and it was really scary. Because uh, at first, the doctors were like, you can't run, you can't jump, you can't do anything, you can't play any sports. It was really terrifying. And in that painful time, he just kind of poured himself more into music. He'd already been learning a little bit of music, but that, that pain from the outside uh, redirected him to pour more of his discipline, more of his energy into music. And as a result of that, he's a musician. There's like fantastic delight that he brings to me, to other people, to himself, through enjoying the gift of music. Now, the, the sweet thing is he, 
he still has pain to this day physically because of this problem he has, but he was able to go back and play sports and do other things and live a, a somewhat normal life after that. But that painful prognosis, diagnosis, sidetracked his life. Felt like, at the time, a horrible tragedy. But that tragedy God used for something really good and beautiful. And I just want to give you that vision that, that that's what we believe about pain, that, that the God of the universe is so sovereign and he's such a good father that he can use hard experiences in your life, things that you never wanted and you never asked for. He can use those things to actually redirect you to a place of sweetness. And it's not always like it just works out perfectly a year later, right? Sometimes it's hard and it's a long road. But the Bible says again and again, that's why I was leading you to Romans 8, we can trust him. God is good. All things work out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Hebrews chapter 12 is a fantastic cross-reference. I wish I had you know, another hour to preach another sermon out of that passage. But it repeats some of this language from Proverbs. It says we shouldn't despise the Lord's discipline. When hard things happen in our life, we can recognize we have a good, good father who loves us, who gave himself for us. We can look to big brother Jesus who saw the pain of the cross and for the joy before him, the joy of reunification with the Father, the joy of saving you and me, he endured that pain. He went forward with that game plan and he found great delight on the other side of that discipline and that difficulty. I want to leave it there, just recognizing that no matter where we are in our own leadership of other people, we are being led by God. We have a good father who loves us, who gave himself for us, and who disciplines us in delight. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you lead us. And we pray that you would give us patience and perseverance, as it says in Hebrews 12. That we would run with perseverance the race that you've marked out for us. That we would continue to follow Jesus. We would look to him as the founder and perfecter of our faith. We would trust him. We trust you. Thank you for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.